John 4, 5 through 26 is found in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sechar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. The word of the Lord. Already through our study and, and um, moving through the gospel of John, we know that this is a gospel of contrasts. We've seen the difference between light and dark, of um, that which is from above, that which is from below, and then later we're going to see... Um, 
how those who have vision and sight versus those who are blind spiritually. This is another one of those contrasts, chapter 3 and 4. In chapter 3, we, we heard the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, and now here in chapter 4, the encounter with this Samaritan woman. The contrasts are startling. One is a man, the other a woman. The man, Nicodemus, is a Jew. The woman, the unnamed woman, is a Samaritan. Nicodemus is a righteous member of a ruling class. The woman is a social outcast among a people group who are despised by the Jews. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. This woman encounters Jesus in the brightness of the noonday sun. Nicodemus leaves, puzzled over what Jesus has said. The woman leaves and comes back, bringing her townspeople to hear Jesus. And in doing so, becomes the first female preacher in Christian history. What an incredible story. Now, a pious Jew usually didn't travel through Samaria. They would go around it took a lot longer to do so. And the reason they did that is to avoid defilement of coming in contact with Samaritans. But Jesus knew defilement was a matter of the inside, not outside contact of any sort. So he chose the shorter path and goes through the, the hill ridgeline of Israel through Samaria. And there the route takes him by Sakar and Jacob's well. And there he encounters a woman who has come with her bucket to draw water. Now, something you need to know that you wouldn't is that Middle Eastern village women avoided the heat of the day when they came to draw water, so they would go early in the morning or near sundown. And they would typically come as a group. That way they could catch up on the latest news and gossip of the village, as well as help each other, either lift the jars up on their heads or carry them from, from the well. The fact that this woman has come alone at noon means that she is likely someone who socially is ostracized or at least kept at a distance from the other women. Ken Bailey, a Middle Eastern New Testament scholar whose book is one of the best you can get in understanding Jesus in the context of the Middle East, it's titled Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he describes the technique and custom of how water was drawn from a well. First of all, you can't picture a Western well at all with the, with the crossbar and the bucket hanging and you lower it down, okay? Think of no crossbar, nothing, it's just a hole, all right? There's no bucket there, and it's not attached to the well. You have to bring your own, and the buckets they used were made of leather with cross sticks, and as they lowered it, the soft leather at the top would open and allow the bucket to be filled as it's lowered into the well. And then when not in use, you could roll the letter, leather up and carry it and transport it home without it being something cumbersome. So you had to bring your own bucket. And now that explains why she's saying to him, you, you have nothing to draw water. How's that even possible? Um, but by deliberately sitting at the well without a bucket, Jesus has placed himself strategically to be in need of whoever might appear with the necessary equipment. And when the woman approached, 
it would have been expected for Jesus to courteously withdraw to a distance of at least 20 feet, um, indicating it was both safe and culturally appropriate then for a woman, or for her especially, to come to the well. Only then could she move to the well, unroll the leather bucket, lower it into the water, fill her jar, and be on her way. Jesus did not move when she approached, and she decided to draw near anyway. Now, Jesus asked for a drink, and we as Westerners hear that and think nothing of it. But in first century customs and history, um, there's an entirely different dynamic going on. And in other words, and for us to understand this, Bailey says there's four startling things that happen at this moment. I'm going to mention three and the fourth one later. Jesus breaks the social taboo against a man talking to a woman out in public, especially in a remote area where there's no witnesses. Jesus crossed a social boundary line that should not be crossed. And the fact that Jesus not only did this with this woman, but in other instances invited women to become his disciples, Bailey says this, you, you can't underestimate the importance of this. The radical nature of the changes in attitude toward women that Jesus introduced in his time are beyond description. It was revolutionary what Jesus was doing. Secondly, Jesus ignored the 500-year-old hostility that had developed between Jews and Samaritans. In fact, it even went back further than that. Uh, centuries before, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom, of which Samaria was the capital of that northern kingdom. And one of their practices was to remove people, extract them out of the, their homeland, and then import other people into that place and take those people and import them other places. That way their, their kingdom had, was unable, I mean, pardon me, their empire was unable to have revolution of people stirring up to revolt against the empire because they were just trying to sort out who's who. And then you can imagine over time there were intermarriages and that's why the Jews were so hostile towards Samaritans. And then later on, the Greeks used Samaria as a base of their control of the Jewish territory, and they were, they were notorious. And um, then later, during the period of the Maccabees, the Jews retaliate with some of the things the Greeks had done by destroying Samaria's temple at the summit of Mount Gerizim. So there's no real love between Jews and Samaritans. The third thing, Jesus elevates this woman's self-worth by asking her to help him out with her available resources and not implying that he would be defiled by sharing a common vessel. He basically shows this woman dignity and elevates her status and standing. The water from Jacob's well was fed by an underground spring, and water was such a valued commodity um, in the Middle East, that it was captured um, and stored in cisterns. Um, in other words, any running water, they would, they would uh, much the way we store water in a water vat or a tower, uh, they did the same, only cisterns were down in the ground. 
over time, that water becomes stagnant. It just sits there. And it, you can imagine running f- water is much fresher. Water from a stream or a river, you would, you would enjoy that water compared to drinking water you had to drink out of a cistern that had been there for uh, quite a while. You would call that stagnant water versus the flowing water. But even the spring water, Jesus says, quenches thirst temporarily, but the water he gives quenches thirst forever. A different kind of water to quench forever a different kind of thirst. And she doesn't quite comprehend that Jesus himself is this gift of living water, this gift of God. Nevertheless, she recognizes her own need in the form of thirst. And she now is the one who's doing the asking. Give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. Jesus invites her, go call your husband and return. He challenges her to allow the source of this water to be shared with those related to her. And her initial reaction is to try to hide her private life um, by deflecting Jesus' question. I have no husband. Jesus puts his finger directly on the most vulnerable area of her life. You've answered correctly what you said is true. Indeed, you've had five husbands, and now the man you're with is not your husband. Awkward. Um, Yeah. Anytime you get a religious person with other people, and they know that person's religious, it's an awkward moment. And people say the most amazing things to those of us who are clergy. Um, um, if, I di- if I disclose that I'm a pastor, people go, oh, well, I've been to church, or um, um, they'll say, but yesterday, a man I encountered totally threw me off when I said, I'm a pastor. I pastor a First Presbyterian church. He goes, well, I won't hold that against you. <laughs> wow. This woman's attempt to divert the discussion uh, in a new direction is is amazing because Jesus doesn't hold her uh, in that place and and expose her any further. He lets the conversation move and the dialogue continue. Her response is more a matter of amazement at Jesus' knowledge than it is a matter of conviction of her own personal life. And while her exposure of five husbands and current love interests does not reflect well on her character, nevertheless, The dialogue continues, shifting now to a long-standing theological divide between Samaritans and Jews. Thinking Jesus to be a prophet, she asks for his theological take on this most important question. Uh, Where is God properly worshipped? Is it here at Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans have done, following this sacred place of the patriarchs? Or is it in Jerusalem at Mount Zion? In other words, who's correct, the Jews or the Samaritans? It's a test to see how he'll answer. I'm amazed that Jesus doesn't call out her deflection of her spiritual condition, but treats her question seriously and treats her seriously. And in doing so, reveals the most important teaching on worship found in the entire New Testament. Jesus redefines what worship is and how it's to be done. And basically says temples are obsolete. From now on, 
God desires worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And ultimately says, our own bodies become temples of the living God where God dwells. True worship has nothing to do with territory or temples and everything to do with spirituality and truth. So a little later, the woman speaks of the coming of the Messiah and the one who will show us all things to which Jesus replies, that's me. That's me. Now, he says it a little bit more formally. And in fact, the words John used almost uh, hints at the self-disclosure of, of God back in Moses' day. Remember when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and says, go free my people from the most powerful man in the world and uh, take a staff with you. And Moses is like, what? Well, then who, who do I say sent me? I don't even know who you are. And he goes, I am. That was the name he revealed. That's what Jesus says here. He says the same thing. The one of whom you speak, I am. Make no mistake, the reader will understand that this is a, this is a reflection of that divine revelation. Well, she leaves Jesus to witness to her entire community, leaving her jar behind. Remember, she came for water. Instead, she carries a witness to the water that quenches the thirst of the Spirit forever. And she herself becomes a spring for others. And Jesus didn't tell her to do this. He didn't say, go and tell, share this good news with others. She takes her own initiative to do so. Neither shame nor humility nor uncertainty about Jesus' identity keeps her from telling others. And like Andrew told Peter and like Philip told Nathaniel, now she tells her community, come see. Come see, could this be the Christ? Church father Ephraim, the Syrian, beautifully summarizes this woman's encounter with Jesus this way. First she caught sight of a thirsty man, then recognized a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, and last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ. And the townspeople who come following her say the most uh, revelatory thing in all of John's gospel to this point, other than in the prologue. They turn to her and say, we no longer believe because of your word, for we ourselves have heard and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. <coughs> One commentator has observed, this is the only use of the word salvation in all of John's gospel. And the assertion of the Samaritans of Jesus as Savior is its only use in all of the gospel. Jesus offers this woman and the, her fellow Samaritans the messianic salvation that comes from the Jews without ever asking them to become Jewish. Whoa! Later, when the Apostle Paul is evangelizing among Gentiles and they're coming to faith, the early church doesn't know what to do. Do we convert them to Judaism first so that they will have salvation? Or is their faith in Jesus enough? They didn't read John 4. If they had read John 4, it wasn't available yet. If they had only known this story, they would have known Jesus himself said, salvation is for all. This leads me 
to return to um, Bailey's fourth comment. Rather than Jesus telling this woman how she needs him and his message, the first thing Jesus does in humility is express his need of her services. This ought to be a, a, a lesson for us all when it comes to how do we describe and share our faith with others. So often we think we have the answer and we're right and we, need, we have what other people need. But when do we express our vulnerability and our need so that a relationship can be formed in which there's trust so that the gospel can truly be heard? Not as some sales pitch or some manipulative um, um, technique, but as, as people who need to grow and flourish in life and know that there's a different kind of water altogether that can quench thirst forever. Sri Lankan theologian, as Bailey quotes, Daniel Niles explains why this move was important to Jesus' mission. He says he was a true servant because he was at the mercy of those whom he came to serve. And then he contrasts that with the way Christian missions has often gone out and built schools. And this is why Gary was referring to this in hospitals and orphanages and other such institutions that become an avenue of Christian service, but also sometimes look to the community to be something that, um, that is bigger and better than anything else they have. And so that others in that community might feel a sense of jealousy or even fear of this powerful force and presence in their midst and even be suspicious of the church. So Niles says this, the only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. The Christian community must serve. It must also be in a position where it needs to be served. And I've learned this late in life. It's taken me a long time to understand, and mostly through acts of community service and volunteering, coming alongside people of, of vulnerable condition, and instead of saying, I can help you, just saying, I'm here to know you and to share life experience with you and to learn from you. It totally changes the dynamic. And I have learned so much from people who have nothing and have to rely solely on God. Whereas I tend to rely on all my abilities and all my resources first and then say, oh God, I've run out of those. Help. Salvation is indeed from the Jews, but it, it is meant to reach beyond the people of Israel to embrace the whole world. God, by grace, acted decisively from the time of the patriarchs down through the exiles and now culminating in this hour that Jesus describes. It's not a literal hour. It's the time of the revelation of God's presence in history, referring to Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and the outpouring of God's spirit, which becomes water welling up within everyone. Through contact with this woman and her telling others this unfolding, this process of God's revelation and salvation 
is made available to all such that they say this indeed is the savior of the world. Do we offer that kind of uh, an opportunity for people to taste and see that the Lord is good? May it be so.